With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Foodcast. I'm Davey H and this is the... Oh, what the fuck? This is the Rolling Rock episode. Thank you for downloading or streaming episode 33 of the Foodcast. And if I sound a little annoyed instead of like my usual cheerful self, it's because nothing's gone right in the world of Foodcast this week. So I'm delivering a day late and several minutes short. I had a great guest lined up, including a guest-appropriate rant and stunt, but he bailed on me. And at this point, Matt Damon had gotten so tired of waiting in the wings that he didn't stick around to be my backup guest. So I needed to start from scratch and pull an episode out of my you-know-where, and if you don't know where, it's another place you'll often find me scratching. And that means you're stuck with me making butt jokes like the one you just heard and cobbling together other useful info, along with the usual lame Easter eggs such as my reference to Rolling Rock Beer, which, like this episode, is linked to the number 33. But this episode is episode 33 because it's the one right after episode 32, and just before episode 34... That is, if I can get my act together to do an episode 34. And no one knows the real reason why Rolling Rock Beer has a 33 on every bottle. In this episode, we learn how salt probably isn't as dangerous as we've been led to believe. But first, we learn about an activity many of us will be doing as the weather gets warmer. And while that activity isn't drinking Rolling Rocks, it is perfectly fine activity to engage in while drinking Rolling Rocks. In episode 32 of the Foodcast, I acknowledge the wonders of springtime, because it's springtime! With its fragrance of blooming flowers, rain-soaked mornings, and Kingsford lighter fluid burdening over a pyramid of royal oak charcoal briquettes. But alas, some killjoys from the Seoul National University in South Korea go cranes, and I assume that's crane the bird and not a mechanical crane made by Hyundai Heavy Equipment, have once again revived the fear-mongering around grilling, with a study linking the byproducts of grilled meat to several types of cancer from head to toe. Is it time to retire your Weber or Big Green Egg? Well, here's the deal. As is the case with many nutrition studies, the research is not entirely conclusive. But roll this latest study with previous attempts on animals and humans, and we know enough to say with high confidence Grilling meat can create byproducts that are known carcinogens. Let me mansplain. As with all cooking, grilling is a chemistry experiment in that it causes relatively stable substances to transform to a new state. And by new state, I don't mean like Virginia, because Virginia is not a state. It's a commonwealth. (coughs) Anyway, transformed substances to a new state or to an entirely different substance altogether. When grilling two transformations in particular are relevant to the cancer discussion. One is called heterocyclic amines, or HCAs, and HCAs are the result of creatine, which is an essential acid required for animal cell energy, so it's in all animal cells, amino acids, or proteins, 
and sugar in meat being exposed to high temperatures, such as direct contact to grill grates or flames. HCAs start to form at temperatures above 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 Celsius, but really get going at about 570 degrees Fahrenheit or 300 degrees Celsius. While most meat is cooked at temperatures at the low end of the HCA forming range, grills especially lean towards the high end, say 700 degrees Fahrenheit or 370 Celsius. And this is how we get those nice char marks on the steak, pork, lamb, chicken, fish, and so on that we're cooking, and those char marks are also known as HCAs. The concentration of HCAs in your grilled meat varies depending on the type of meat, how it's grilled, temperature, and cooking time. The research shows that in large doses, HCAs cause damage to your DNA, mutations that often lead to cancer. And if heterocyclic amines weren't scary enough, their partner in crime is another substance called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or, because we're feeling extra frisky with our acronyms today, PAHs. PAHs form when animal fat drips down onto hot coals or flames and ignite. The resulting smoke deposits harmful substances on the surface of the meat. The EPA classifies a whole series of PAHs as probable human carcinogens. But in the new U.S. federal budget, the EPA is about to disappear, so I suppose we fix that problem. However, until Congress passes that budget, PAHs will continue to exist and will be influenced by cooking temperatures, cooking duration, type of cooking fuel, distance from the heat source, and fat content of the meat being cooked. But let's examine the other side of this coin. Grilled food is delicious. In many cultures, grilling, the backyard barbecue, is associated with fun and happy social gatherings that encourage healthy, wholesome human interaction. That is until Mark from up the street has won too many rolling rocks and starts making awkward and unfunny sex jokes around the children. Grilling gets you cooking and tends to involve unprocessed or at least lightly processed foods. Both are habits associated with good health. And perhaps most importantly, grilling, when done right, is actually one of the lowest calorie ways to cook meat. It doesn't require much, if any, added fat during cooking, and with the right preparation and proper cooking techniques, the food tastes so good on its own there's no need for added sauces laden with fats and sugar. So, in the case of grilling, how do we have our steak and eat it too? First, manage the temperature and cooking time of your grilling. Keep the temperature of your grill at a moderate level. Unless you're using a recipe that calls for near thermonuclear, that's right, I said thermonuclear. Unless you're using a recipe that calls for near thermonuclear temperature, aim for the low end of what you're grilling. You don't necessarily need all your burners on in a gas grill, and a charcoal grill can usually get away with a single layer of coals. Use indirect cooking methods if possible that involve not having the meat directly over the heat source. That'll reduce flare-ups and PAHs. Leaner cuts of meat, besides being lower in calories, also result in fewer flare-ups, PAHs, and HCAs. Yes, that marbled New York strip is yummy. Go ahead, but it never hurts to opt for the tenderloin on occasion, or the chicken breast. Flip your meat so that no one side gets too overdone. Medium to medium rare is the safest doneness level for meat when it comes to killing off bacteria while avoiding HCAs and PAH accumulation. Our president's pension for well-done steak is ill-advised. 
Imagine that. This mistreatment probably brings tears to the eyes of the farmer and butcher who work so hard to produce his meal. And while they may feel it's merely throwing salt in the wound to dip that steak in ketchup, it may be the saving grace of the prez. Although commercial ketchup is usually loaded with sugar, it's also loaded with tomatoes. And tomatoes are among the many vegetables packed with antioxidants that have cancer-fighting properties. And that leads me to the second suggestion, which is eat tons of vegetables and fruits with your grilled meat. They'll do more than anything to cancel out any damage done by grilling meat. Note, grilled and charred vegetables do not suffer from the same cancer-causing circumstances as meat. In fact, in my opinion, unlike well-done meat, charred vegetables taste pretty great. Once upon a time, a restaurant called Baja Fresh used to include charred spring onions with your meal. I would save it for dessert. This was before the chipotlefication of our nation. A third way to ward off the cancer-causing nasties is liberal use of herbs, spices, and marinades. I could and should do an entire episode of the Foodcast about the health benefits of herbs and spices, but specifically as it relates to grilling, mint goes great with lamb and reduces HCA formation. Rosemary, garlic, onion powder, and that soapy yellow spice covered in Foodcast episode 15, turmeric, all have similar effects on HCAs. Creating dry rubs with herbs or spices or mixing them in with your burgers is a tasty way to quell your cancer nerves. Marinating meat is often more effective. Acid-based marinades, such as ones with vinegar or citrus, reduce HCAs by as much as 99%, and beer marinade reduces PAH formation. The darker the beer, the more effective. So in this case, you're better off drinking your Rolling Rock and sadly donating a bottle of porter or stout to the cause. Sugar-based marinades, like counting to five when engaging the holy hand grenade, are right out. Remember, sugar is one of the essential reactants in the chemistry experiment that started this whole rant to begin with. A few other suggestions before we let this whole thing burn out. Although one of the benefits of grilling is the opportunity to avoid processed meats, that's going to be up to you. Make your own burger patties. Look for sources of handmade sausage and develop that sense of pride in creating and marinating your own meals. Smaller cuts of meat cook in less time than larger cuts, and that means less opportunities for HCAs and PAHs. I'm thinking kebabs here. Finally, don't forget to clean those grill grates. The black stuff on the grates is nasty, and it is pretty much those HCAs. Let that stuff char so it brushes right off. Then spray your grates with some white vinegar and shove a crumpled piece of aluminum foil between some tongs and rub those grates to remove the grill grime. With those strategies, you can go into this spring and summer knowing your backyard barbecue is a source of wholesome, healthful fun. At least until Mark shows up. Commodore Schmidlap, which is one of the best obscure Batman references ever, so thank you, Commodore Schmidlap. Anyway, Commodore Schmidlap tweeted the one-word question to me of hyponatremia. And let me say right here, Commodore, that if ever we needed a hero to accidentally spill the dehydrated remains of the world's diplomatic corps and subsequently sneeze so that they're all mixed up before being reconstituted, this would be the time. And sorry to those of you not following, that's a deep pop culture reference to the original Batman movie. But on to what I assume is the question at hand, hyponatremia. 
What is hyponatremia? Hyponatremia is the condition people get as a result of any combination of two habits we think are healthy. They are drinking too much water and restricting sodium intake. The body keeps a careful balance of water inside and outside of cells and uses the amount of sodium in cells to regulate this balance. When you're low on sodium, it causes more water to move inside your cells, resulting in swelling of the brain and other organs. Remember the man trap episode in Star Trek when Dr. McCoy's old flame actually turns out to be a murdering salt vampire? That's the extreme version of hyponatremia. In many senses, it's the opposite of dehydration and can cause dizziness, lethargy, malaise, whatever that is, thirst, headache, insufficient urine production or pee that's as clear as a bottle of overpriced water, mental confusion or nausea or death. And these deaths range from the sad and tragic, such as the Mississippi high school football player who died during practice from not properly managing his electrolytes, to the sad, tragic, and oddly Darwinian, such as the woman who died in a radio station contest called Hold Your Wee for a Wee, in which participants had to hold it in while continuously drinking water because the last holdout would win a Nintendo Wii game console. Other potential victims are people who have disorders of the kidney or other organs that can affect kidney function, such as the heart or liver. And from that, you get a good idea of the types of people who truly have to worry about hyponatremia. They're folks who aren't really being mindful and respectful about how their body feels, or they're folks who need to carefully manage their health to begin with. In this segment of the Foodcast, we'll focus on the first group, because the second one not only needs to be mindful and respectful about how their body feels, but they need to follow doctor's orders. In that first group, the mindlessness that results in poor water and electrolyte management is usually because the victim is focusing on something else, such as a competitive situation, or it's the result of ignorance, and maybe even incompetence. While hyponatremia is less common than dehydration for people with dementia, both can occur. Hyponatremia is surprisingly more common in the fit and lean because the percentage of body mass consisting of water is higher in lean folks, and this can cause greater sensitivity. The best way to avoid hyponatremia is to not overdo it, either on the water intake or the sodium avoidance. This is especially true when performing vigorous physical activity on hot days. But, I can hear Trini from episode 32 asking, how much is too much or not enough? And how do I avoid it? One thing to definitely not do is drink distilled water, water that has all the minerals removed. Distilled water may be great for cleaning eyeglasses, but it's also the express drain to hyponatremia. The best drinks for avoiding hyponatremia are beverages that are naturally balanced in electrolytes and water. This can be sports drinks, or the once trendy coconut water, or the now trendy maple water. But before handing over your money to Big Beverage, keep in mind that you only need to resort to these types of drinks if you really expect to sweat for long durations. Otherwise, good old-fashioned water will work fine. Most sports drinks are the result of chemistry experiments and contain loads of sugar, artificial colors, and other unnecessary stuff that may be fine for University of Florida Gators, but not stuff we mere mortals need. The other more quote-unquote natural solutions, like coconut water and maple water, are generally overpriced and overhyped, but are a valid hyponatremia avoidance tool. A good target amount to drink under vigorous activity conditions is 4-6 to six ounces 
or 100 to 200 milliliters every 15 to 20 minutes. But again, if you're not sweating profusely from vigorous exercise, then you don't need to resort to these drinks. It's true that coconut and maple waters have other magical ingredients that may have health benefits, but those ingredients are nothing you can't get with whole vegetables and fruits with the added benefit of those whole vegetables and fruits, fiber, and the fact that they don't taste like ass. The next thing you can do is recognize that the advice of drinking eight glasses of water a day is not all that great. A better solution for most people is to recognize when you're thirsty and respond to it. Don't assume that if eight glasses is good, that 16 is better and 24 is even better. As is true with so many things, let your urine be your guide. I include a handy urine color chart in the show notes. I suggest you save it and whip it out whenever you go to the toilet. (laughs) I said whip it out. And don't forget, salt's your friend and should never be totally avoided even in the cases of high blood pressure, osteoporosis, kidney stones, or other conditions with contraindications of salt. Controlled, yes. Complete avoidance, like you avoid that creepy guy from high school who friended you on Facebook? No. In fact, don't avoid me. I mean, don't avoid him either. We'll talk about that whole salt thing in the next segment. But for now, Commodore, that's what I have to say about hyponatremia. For the general public, I don't think it's something people need to worry about too much. It's a disorder of the obsessive. People who obsess over their athletic performance at the expense of the true chemical fundamentals that allow them to perform in the first place, or people who obsessively drink water or avoid sodium. And by obsessive, I mean like clinically obsessive. I mean like Felix Unger from Odd Couple Obsessive. In this segment of the Foodcast, we talk about salt, and I tie it to those 2015 Dietary Guidelines for Americans that I'm Felix Unger obsessed about. Since 1977, these guidelines have been the source of endless controversy and mirth to people like me who find controversy and mirth in things most people don't really care about. But you should care about them, from the advice you get from your doctor to the products you're sold in the supermarket, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans are at the center of your overall health and wellness. My obsession on this topic came thanks to followers who requested I analyze and document my impressions of the 2015 version of the guidelines. They knew that setting me loose on this task would result in a no-bullcrap interpretation of this important document. Furthermore, they correctly suspected that engaging in this activity would keep me off the streets long enough to delay my pestering of people to support National Schlumpia Day. And what's the deal with these guidelines and salt? In its previous version, the 2010 version said this, quote, Reduce daily sodium intake to less than 2,300 milligrams and further reduce intake to 1,500 milligrams among persons who are 51 and older and those of any age who are African-American or have hypertension, diabetes, diabetes, or chronic kidney disease. The 1500 milligram recommendation applies to about half of the United States population, including children and the majority of adults, unquote. Translation, if you're relatively young, healthy, and not African-American, 
Limit salt consumption to one teaspoon or about six grams per day. If you're getting along in years, have certain health conditions, or African American, cut that limit by 35%. And for those of you in the audience who are not in America, this advice applies to African Norwegians, African Filipinos, and African Africans as well. But in the 2015 guidelines, there was a sudden shift, and here's what they say. Quote, healthy eating patterns limit sodium to less than 2,300 milligrams per day for adults and children ages 14 and older, and to the age and sex-appropriate tolerable upper intake limit of sodium for children younger than 14 years, unquote. It also says, quote, further reduction to 1,500 milligrams per day can result in even greater blood pressure reduction, unquote. Translation, forget about that 1,500 milligram per day thing unless you already have high blood pressure. One teaspoon is fine for most people. Kids under 14 are the exception. And here are the recommendations for them. If your kid's one to three years old, the recommendation is 1,500 milligrams. 4 to 8 years old is 1,900 milligrams, and 9 to 13-year-olds are 2,200 milligrams. Why the change? The National Academy of Medicine, formerly the Institute of Medicine, Go Fighting Tongue Depressors, performed a meta-analysis in 2013 on the effects of sodium. What they found is there's no evidence to support singling out specific subgroups of people and treating them any differently than the population at large. Furthermore, there's no obvious benefit to adults when they consume fewer than 2,300 milligrams of sodium. Clearly, there's been a change of heart. But what should a normal person do with this information? Or in the absence of a normal person, what would Davy H. do? The first thing Davy H. would do is get sciency on you and make sure a few things are clear. Salt is not the same as sodium. Plain white salt is comprised of one molecule of sodium with the chemical symbol of Na and one molecule of chlorine with the chemical symbol of Cl. Approximately 60% of salt's weight comes from the chlorine, while the rest comes from the sodium. So, a gram of salt is slightly less than half a gram of sodium. The Dietary Guidelines for Americans' recommendation for daily sodium consumption is 2,300 milligrams, or 2.3 grams. But people don't add sodium to their french fries. They add salt. And 6 grams of salt a day is the equivalent of about 2.3 grams of sodium per day. Nutrition fact labels tell you the sodium content in milligrams, which is a measure of weight. But when you add salt to your own food, you eyeball it, or do it according to volume, such as teaspoon or tablespoons. And to do the conversion, you have to do all sorts of math yourself, which is why the Lord invented the swipe up function on the iPhone, so you could get easier access to the calculator app. Or Siri, who you can ask directly. Hey Siri, how much sodium in a teaspoon of salt? Hmm, let me think. Here's what I found on the web for how much podium in a baboon of malt. Have a look. Fancy salts with added flavors or colors are not pure NaCl, sodium chloride. For the purposes of our discussion, it's safe to assume they're mostly sodium chloride, so you don't get to shave points off because your Himalayan salt is pink, or bacon salt has real artificial bacon flavor mixed in. Ooh, bacon! And in the latter case, you actually probably lose points. 
The great news is that when you get to the recommendations I'm about to give you, you see that most of you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. The next thing to note, as we learned from my word salad about hyponatremia, sodium is an essential nutrient. Your body needs sodium and it can't manufacture it by itself. Salt is the purest food source of sodium. People who don't get enough sodium may see an increase in a number of chronic disease risk factors, including elevated LDL, or so-called bad cholesterol, elevated triglycerides, and increased insulin resistance. Another important consideration is that sodium's impact on blood pressure is modest at best. According to one study, restricting salt lowered the systolic blood pressure of hypertensive patients by only 5.4 points, and the diastolic blood pressure by 2.8 points. For subjects with normal blood pressure, the reduction was only 2.5 points systolic and 1 point diastolic. A final note is that potassium in the diet has a balancing effect on blood pressure. Potassium helps to lower blood pressure by helping your body get rid of excess urine. The recommendation daily allowance of potassium is 4,700 milligrams. Only 2% of Americans achieve that goal. Meanwhile, the average American consumes 3,600 milligrams of sodium each day. And research backs this stuff up. So there's much opportunity to increase potassium in the diet as there is to decrease sodium. And more on that on a bit too. But first, here are some Karmasent salt recommendations on how to manage dietary sodium for optimal health. First, unless you're in a specific risk category and you're under doctor's orders to reduce sodium, don't sweat it. Manage your salt intake by eating fewer processed foods. Processed foods and cheap restaurant meals are where most of the added salt in your diet originates. Keep in mind that salt is added to these foods for a few reasons. First of all, salt hides the fact that the food they give you tastes like crap. Your bacon and ranch-flavored chocolate-covered cheese puffs would probably taste more like the plastic soda bottles they're made from if it weren't for the salt. Second, salt is a natural preservative. The salt in your bacon and ranch-flavored chocolate-covered cheese puffs is not only added for flavor. It also ensures they stay fresh, even though they were made back at the same time that that original Batman movie was made with Commodore Schmidlap. Finally, in restaurants, the salt makes you thirsty, and that may encourage you to purchase an extra rolling rock. These pretzels are making me thirsty. <laughs> Decrease the impact of salt on your blood pressure by eating more foods with potassium in them, such as broccoli, pokeberry, that's right, pokeberry, and asparagus. And somewhere in there is a joke about checking the color and odor of your urine that I'm just not clever enough to make. I include a comprehensive list of foods that are high in potassium in the show notes. If you don't like any of them, learn a trick from big food. Reserve your allocation of added salt and sprinkle it sparingly over these foods. It'll help you choke them down and over time you'll learn to love them. I promise. If you do have high blood pressure, osteoporosis, kidney problems, or any other condition that influence your doctor to recommend a low-sodium diet, take their advice, but ask questions. Some great questions to ask include, how does sodium impact my condition? What other lifestyle changes can I make to improve my condition? How will we follow up to make sure your recommendations have the desired effect? And what side effects should I look out for by making the change? 
If your physician doesn't want to have this conversation with you or gives you answers you're not comfortable with, change physicians. I'd love to help you myself, but to paraphrase Dr. Bones McCoy, I'm a health coach, not a doctor. And so ends this cluster fluff of a Foodcast episode. Sorry for being late. Sorry for being short. Sorry for being lame. And I have no one to blame but myself, so I'll learn a lesson from this one and be sure I have backup plans for my backup plans next time. So I'm not going to ask you to leave a review on iTunes to reward me for my efforts. Not because I feel unworthy, but because it's not called iTunes anymore. It's called Apple Podcasts. So please leave a review of the Foodcast on Apple Podcasts, even if it has some constructive negative criticism. I do want to continue to improve this show, and your input will make that happen. If you're not up to it, consider letting a friend know that you listen to the show and that you think they should too. Point them to an episode you like, or that at least is relevant to their needs. I really do want to thank you for listening, and until next time, remember what your old friend, Dr. Bones McCoy, always says. I'm a surgeon. Not a psychiatrist. I'm a doctor, not an engineer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. Damn it, man, I'm a doctor, not a torpedo technician. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. What am I, a doctor or a moon shuttle conductor? I'm a doctor, not an escalator. I'm a health coach, not a podcast producer. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.